Welcome to the special resumption of play edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman. And this week, we want to say a special hello to all you brand spanking new Bundesliga fans. And gosh, I, I promise you, it is not normally this echoey on a normal match day in the stadiums. It's usually a much, much different atmosphere. With me from Munich this week is one of our top guests, Marie Schulte. Welcome. How's it going? Hi, Matt. It's going really well. I'm actually about 24 hours away from being in Munich, though. Oh. I'm tuning in from England, where I've been spending the last two months, ever since I was meant to come here for a short vacation of four days to see Liverpool versus Atletico live at Anfield. And uh, as we all know, that was pretty much Europe's last football match with fans. <laughs> so, yep, I was of there. all the games. And, uh, <laughs> right. It was a really good game. Really exciting. And I'm very glad. So that was my first time at Anfield. And I'm some something of a grounds tourist. I love going to different stadiums and soaking up the atmosphere and seeing the chants and the community around the stadium. And so I was really glad that I got to soak that up and... Then I hung around because my family lives in England. So I basically spent quarantine here. And now I'm flying back home to Munich where I live and work tomorrow. All right. Well, just in time for, uh, you know, the Bundesliga to have restarted, but uh, not being able to go into the ground. Yeah, we got a lot to talk about, not only about match day 26, but about the various COVID related storylines that have been making the rounds. All the storylines that are around, uh, you know, media relations, Plenty of deep thinking uh, about the nature of football, because folks, if we just take one step back from what just happened, all of this is very, very strange. All right, let's kick off the first part of our podcast, the part of the pod where we hit up the best of the match day that's just gone. That's uh, match day 26 in this case, although it kind of feels like, you know, <laughs> match day one of a completely different season. And, you know, as I've just made uh, reference to, we can't really get away from the fact that it was very, very different. Marie, I... You know, you already mentioned to me that you found yourself unexpectedly stuck in Britain. You know, not ordinarily a bad place to be stuck, although in the grand scheme of COVID lockdown venue shopping, maybe not the best place to be. But you also, <laughs> you were watching it on BT Sport instead of uh, Sky Deutschland. How was that experience for you? How was the general weird, echoey, shouty Bundesliga experience? You know... I thought I, I was very impressed by BT Sport. I think over the past few years, if uh, any English listeners are tuning in right now, they've really increased their coverage and also their expertise. And they had Raphael Honigstein in the studio for some of the matches, who's one of the best experts of German football in the English speaking uh, media, of course, writing for The Athletic. And on Sunday, they also featured Archie, Ryan's. Tut, I think. Am I pronouncing his name? Yeah, man. Archie Ren Tut, talking foosball alumnus. Yeah. So that was really fun. He was basically showing up live in front of the Cologne grounds and showing us what's going on there, or should I say what's not going on there? Because of course it was really a bizarre view of a really lively grounds, just completely empty on match day. And um, yeah, it was a good experience watching on BT Sports, I thought. And they showed all of the games live. And yeah, it was just as good, if not better, than watching them on Sky Germany. 
Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Sky Germany, and, and I feel that this also sort of crosses over to BT Sport when, you know, they're showing the Premier League. When you have a lot of eyeballs on you, there's always this temptation to to wheel out, quote unquote, pundits who are really just ex-players picking up a check, <laughs> some of whom do a great job. I don't want to uh, impugn them all uh, for, for being sort of um, not really up to saying very much or not wanting to offend their former colleagues. But I actually really loved it when, you know, in the old days of BT Sport, when I lived in, in Britain, where they would have panels that were all journalists and broadcasters, because, you know, I, I'm one. I, I know that it's best to get paid to, to shoot your mouth off and, and say some, you know, controversial and or definitive things and not just sort of, you know, give your sort of mealy mouth answer. And so, yeah, I, I often did did appreciate that kind of uh, punditry much more than than the kind that you might get from. I don't know, Mehmet Scholl or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I got the comparison because I did watch the Revere Derby on Sky Germany. So I thought I thought in general Sky was extremely well prepared, also in terms of interviewing people. And I think we we all know that this is a lot to do with just optics and cosmetics, you know, how things appear on TV. They had plastic covers wrapped over the microphones. They had these kind of sticks. So... When someone was doing an interview, for example, uh, one of the hosts before the match was doing an, a live interview with Johann Joachim Watzke, the Dortmund president or chairman um, on the on the sidelines, and they were literally like three or four meters apart, and it just looked very bizarre. And um, Watzke had his kind of cotton face mask tied under his chin, so it just looked really weird. It looked like you know when you have your sunglasses on your forehead, but basically the other way around because it was under his chin and attached to his ears. So there are all these elements that for us, because this is the first match day in this new era, were quite humorous, but also a little shocking. Because obviously Dortmund, you expect the noise, you expect, you know, yellow and black fans on the stands. And this was just not that. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring up the noise, because for me, a lot of what made this this whole experience feel strange on one level and, and, you know, not strange on another, although we'll get to that, was the sound of this, which was to say the lack of crowd noise and the absolute <laughs> deluge of noise from the players and coaches echoing throughout the ground, reverberating off of those empty stands. I mean, I heard various quite interesting uh, uh, comparisons about what this this sound sounded like. It sounded like, you know, uh, an empty swimming pool or, you know, people uh, shouting in, in an empty gymnasium. It just didn't sound like football as I know it. And and the only thing that, that did sound nice were, you know, you would get a little bit more of, of you know, feet striking balls, balls striking uh, either the back of the net or, or the side netting. But the sound atmosphere was very very jarring and that took a long time for me to get used to yeah yeah and it's it's just really interesting because of course now we can hear what the players are saying in some instances what they're saying to each other if yeah. they're swearing yeah i, w I wanted to ask and you there was actually like a bit of a scandal yeah go for the. <laughs> i don't know if you i heard about the 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 statement in french which was allegedly caught uh, in the the revere derby but i also think i mean i lived in germany a long time i can speak german just fine but like my passive listening is never going to be as good as a native speaker. I mean, you know, like if, when I was in Germany, I would hear people speaking English on a train and it would just cut through 
because my ear is completely trained for that. Like, mm-hmm. did you pick up any interesting, you know, statements that maybe players would prefer not to have had on the record? No, although I have to say I didn't pay particularly close attention to that. Maybe on the next match day, I'll, you know, pick 10 minutes of a match just to, you know, close my eyes and, and really zoom in ear-wise. But yeah, I, I did hear about the accusation that Jean-Claire Todibaud, the Barcelona loanee at Schalke, who I think was actually one of the better players um, in blue in this match, um, that he apparently, at one of the corner kicks just before it was taken, said to Erling Haaland, I think, fuck your grandma or something. Strong stuff. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, I think, I know I shouldn't be saying this, but I think we all know that comments like these get made all the time. So it's just, it's just like bad that it gets picked up now. And also it's a weird insult to pick, I thought. Um, and then someone captured Haaland's reaction. And this guy is like a robot, right? He's so cool. He just kind of like laughed it off. And yeah, then obviously went on to have a really good match. Sure, sure. <laughs> so I guess he was very much the winner of that exchange. And Bild was the news outlet that first came out with the story in Germany. I'm not sure if uh, the French media covered it before. It's quite possible. And they said that they had covered the audio files and they couldn't completely verify it. So if I'm wrong, I'm basically just saying that these accusations are in the air. I'm not saying it happened. That's just something I wanted to add. Yeah, yeah. And and this has got to be one of the sort of, I don't know, more arcane pieces of football etiquette in, in the modern game when you have so many players speaking so many different languages. I mean, in a lot of ways... I don't know of any particular evidence that Erling Haaland speaks any French and had any idea what he had just said to him, (laughs) if he did say it. So I, you know, to me, like the lingua franca in a lot of these games where it's like, you know, you have six different native languages on the pitch or whatever is English or German in this case. So when you throw another language into the mix, like French or Spanish or whatever, like I bet there's a lot of players saying a lot of very outre things in those languages, knowing that... (laughs) Mostly it's for their own sort of benefit or pleasure, let's just say, not necessarily to insult the opponent. Right. And, th- and they know that it, it happens once. No one captures it. It's like stress release in a way. And th- then, you, of course, you have the people like the infamous Franck Ribéry who post these things on Twitter where, of course, they go on to live forever. Um, and, but most players are wise enough not to do that. And it's, it's just it is humorous because, of course... These, there are different phrases and different in, insults in different languages. So then when people like us, journalists, get engaged with translating these, things sound very bizarre. Like I recall after the Golden Stake incident where Ribéry was actually very badly attacked in, in France particularly. He was Some of that was very xenophobic. and I mean, not xenophobic because he's French, but some of the arguments that were brought out against him were really uh, vile. And he then went onto social media to defend his family and he insulted his critics in turn saying, you are the products of broken condoms <laughs> and you, you bring shame on your family trees or something. And of course, reading that in, in German or now saying it in English, it just sounds really bizarre. But maybe these are like things that he grew up saying in, you know, in France. So, yeah, it just goes to show that language is so peculiar in football. Just switching over to thinking about what was what felt normal about these games, and this was something that I think has come up both right when this lockdown uh, began and, and throughout 
the lockdown when we were all sort of musing to ourselves about what would happen when football started again, especially with a truncated, you know, preparation period. Everyone was a bit worried about whether the standard of football was going to be bad or whether, you know, if it, it wasn't bad, it would be, be odd. It would be sort of unrecognizable as football. And to me anyway, I was surprised at how little it was different. I mean, there were definitely moments of where you could see lack of match sharpness. You would see mistimed tackles or, you know, a couple of passes which which went astray. But then again, that sort of thing happens in football matches anyway. I mean, to me, this really looked like watching an extremely high-level football match, which was fairly recognizable as such, but in just the wrong place. It was like watching, you know, UEFA Youth League or like, you know, the atmosphere that you get when you're you're on on a betting site looking for like you know the the, the broadcast that you can't get in the territory you're in and, and and you are killing time between matches and you switch to like a Faroe Islands Premier League game and there's nobody there because no one lives there like it just seemed weird it seemed like a juxtaposition of two worlds where it was like this extremely high level football match and this extremely low stakes atmosphere. It made me kind of feel like, what is football <laughs> as a cultural artifact? Is it really about, you know, the athletic competition and the sort of the tactics? Or is it really about, a? is it a vehicle for community? Is it, you know, uh, an opportunity for people to, you know, have conversations or bet or whatever? It just, this got me into a really weird headspace, these, these games. <laughs> No, it's true. I think I, I also asked myself some philosophical questions because I thought, especially in the derby, which was watched by so many people and is such a, um, yeah, such a myth in, in German football culture and history. I thought the having it without fans really humanized the players in the sense that you suddenly realize, you know, these are guys between late, their, their late teenage years and their early to mid thirties yep. and they're just good at football they look normal. They look like us. They have normal haircuts. Some of them have good haircuts. Some of them have bad haircuts, just like all of us. Special shout out to Jaden Sancho with his new beard. And yeah, I think this was this was just you know they were they were very happy when they scored. There were some very poor dancers. Looking at Nor a Norwegian striker here, and this is just like and I thought it was really it really endeared the players to me that. They were extremely happy to score a goal, even without having to pull off some pre-rehearsed celebration in front of the fans or do something for their sponsor. This it, it reminded me of when I was little and I was playing field hockey in a team and I was playing football in a team and you just had the absolute joy of scoring a goal. And that is what they felt as well. So I thought, and I, you know, you saw that in many of the games and that, that was really refreshing, I thought. Yeah, yeah, there was something not only humanizing, but I mean, and I don't want to use this word in this sort of usual denigrating way, but sort of infantilizing about these games. And I feel like a lot of these players, even when they were asked about this, said that they had to kind of remind themselves of, you know, the way that they used to play this game, you know, when they were playing for the academy side or when they were just playing with their friends and that you had to sort of go back to that reserve of love for the game and love for the pure joy of scoring or, or the pure joy of, of teamwork. And like that, that's a very kid like atmosphere, a very kid like attitude that, yeah, it, it definitely doubly reminds people and certainly reminds me uh, <laughs> creeping up on a, a birthday into my forties uh, that these are a lot of really young guys. 
Definitely. I also thought something that I noticed in a couple of matches is the aspect of human error and defenses. I thought in these matches, some of the defenders really dared more than they usually would have. Like Salif Sani, I mean, he was injured for months and he came back to Schalke and him and Toribo, they played some one-twos in their own box in the first half. And I just do not think that they would have done that in front of 80,000 Dortmund fans. I think they would have completely chopped the ball out 60 meters to the other side of the field. And the same thing happened at Union. You know, Union's defenders, they were quite relaxed and cool-headed in their own box with, you know, some of the best attackers in the world around them. And even there, I, I'm not sure they would have dared to be um, so casual with a full stadium there as well, um, kind of chanting them forwards or putting pressure on them. So in a way, that's something I noticed as well, that perhaps some of the more nervy players, this might be of benefit to them. Or just think of standing you know, on the penalty spot about, you know, you're about to take a penalty kick and the stand opposite you is whistling at you. You can see some individual faces and suddenly there's no one there. Yep. Yep. I agree. There was definitely some players who seemed like they were freed by the lack of fans. And, and, you know, on the other hand, uh, Nevin Subotic perhaps would be an example who was probably freed a little bit too much uh, <laughs> by, by the lack of fans being caught napping uh, uh, like some others this weekend. Let, let, let's let's go ahead and talk about this uh, derby that we have already mentioned a couple of times. It's no secret that you are a very, very uh, big supporter of Schalke Nulfia, although you are impartial enough to, uh, to, to recognize good football when you see it. And... The only good football that was really on display in this game was from the other side, the home side, the side in yellow and black. This was a slaughter, a 4-0 result for Dortmund, who came out of the blocks much faster in this game and basically just ran Schalke over. They never looked like losing, even letting Schalke back into the game after they had um, you know, gotten out to a, a fairly early lead. It's a disappointing result for sure for you and your, you know, uh, uh, the, the rest of the Schalke support. But in some ways, the, the atmosphere surrounding this has got to take a little bit of the edge off. I mean, you can't expect this to be a, you know, a, a great way to get back into the league uh, with probably one of your toughest matches uh, of the year. So losing the derby stings, but the rest of life is so... <laughs> full of sting that maybe it just doesn't feel that bad. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm talking out of turn, but that's kind of how I would look at it. No, I think you're right. I think this is not going to be the match that little Dortmund fans put posters off in their room because no one wants to see images like that. And also, I mean, even the celebrations, you know, the players weren't allowed to jump on each other and, and hug and embrace like they usually do. And honestly, with the third and the fourth goal, the Dortmund players were like, okay, whatever, because it was so clear they were going to win that it was almost like a, you know, just hug of the shoulder or whatever. They, they just seemed so, like, like, so careless, like, oh, okay, we scored another one, off we go now. And I think for Schalke, yeah, this was very sobering and humbling because before the match, I think Charles did, Schalke did like their chances. You know, the derby... Out of the eight previous derbies, Dortmund only won one. And Schalke in that time had a very good track record at Dortmund, probably the most successful Bundesliga team in the Dortmund stadium. I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. I'd have to check that out. But it was just, it was mind-boggling because Witzel and Emre Can, who pretty much carry the midfield, 
either one of them, if the other is injured or together. And of course, Marco Reus were all missing. Jaden Sancho was questionable. And of course, he did come on the, on the end, but he had some injury concerns. So these are four of Dortmund's strongest players. And then Giovanni Reina was supposed to get a chance. He couldn't make a last minute. Torgan Azar came on. It seemed like such a random Dortmund selection that I'm not sure will ever play in that constellation again because some of them are definitely not first stringers. And they just completely slaughtered Schalke. And that was that was just, yeah, really left quite a raw imprint on, on the Schalke team and the club. And the problem with Schalke is I think, I mean, Arit and Suat are two ball-playing midfielders who pretty much carry the team creatively and did so in the first half of the season where they were both extremely strong with assists and goals and generally setting up any attack. And they're both um, in poor form. Suat Serra, of course, after coming back from injury. And you can just really see that because if those two play, lose the balls in the middle of the field or don't even get sought by their teammates. I mean, I, I mean, Ariti was basically detached from the game. It was really bizarre. Then nothing happens. And um, yeah, this is a really concerning performance from Schalke. Yeah. I mean, where do you see Schalke heading from here. This was a, a big missed opportunity for them to sort of put a little bit more pressure on the uh, the European places. This was an opportunity for them, of course, to, to have a huge moral victory. As you've said, this has been uh, a side that other than, uh, you know, a couple of years ago when they, they had that surprise second place finish, have taken a lot of, I don't know, a lot of value out of their results against Dortmund. And the stars are not aligning for this club right now. This this is beginning to look like a season that went from being very promising to very disappointing. <laughs> this is this seems like such a trivial thing at this time, you know, when we're, we're we're living through this pandemic and we're sort of the only league in the world with the luxury of of uh, talking about such trivialities as as matters of form and European places. But, you know, here we are on this football podcast. You know, where, where does Schalke go from here for the next eight games? Is this a salvageable situation? I would say so. And I think they have to put their heads up and say so as well. Because the thing with Schalke is this is the eighth game in a row that they were not able to win in the Bundesliga. And in that time frame, they had an incredible list of injuries. Basically, 11 st potential starters were injured of whom now only three are injured anymore. Omar Mascarel, of course, Benjamin Stamboli, and I'm missing one. Who am I forgetting? Kabak. Ozan Kabak, of course, our most talented defender. Yeah, so those three uh, are missing, and they're all very important, and they're leaders on the field, which is important as well. I, I think Schalke were really lacking a leader, with the exception of Salif Sané, perhaps, yesterday. And um, yeah, but that's three players. You know, the others are all back. Suatziada is back. Daniel Caligiuri is back. These are big uh, pillars of of the team. And I think, you know, they, they are a strong squad on paper. They're not a Champions League squad, but they're a squad that needs to come in sixth. And that's what they need to aim for. It would be very disappointing if they get taken over by the likes of Wolfsburg or Freiburg or Cologne, who are all kind of scratching on Schalke and are already very close, um, if not overtaken. So yeah, we'll have to see where it goes, but I think Schalke needs to 
be very confident and, and say that they still want to get in on those Europa League places. All right. Um, let, let's think a little bit about Dortmund uh, and where they're headed. I think they made a very strong case that they are going to be sticking around in the uh, the title conversation, at least uh, as long as, uh, you know, two match days from now when they uh, when they host Bayern Munich. Depending on how that game turns out, we'll either have something very, very alive or we'll you know, uh, have a very dead title race. What did you make of the fact that they came out as strong as they did? Obviously, none of us has great insight into the morale of the squad and how they sort of experienced this, you know, enforced pause in play. But in terms of looking focused and getting sort of quick results, they probably put on a better show than anybody in the league. Yeah, and I think there was a lot of swagger in their performance. They really looked like they were enjoying what they were doing and happy to be out there. And it just looked so easy, especially some of the counterattacks where it's just like one-two and players sprinting past each other. There was one scene where Ashraf Hakimi, basically with the ball on his foot, sprinted past Todibo on the right side. And it was incredible because Todibo was a very fast defender, probably one of the fastest in the Bundesliga, and he just had no chance. And Hakimi overtook him on the outside, so there was like a lot to be done and then managed to get the cross in as well and ended up being quite a good chance. And that really says it all. And then Torgan Azar, who didn't expect to start, pretty much probably found out 15 minutes before the game that he was starting for Reina, just was one of the match winners. And I think generally this thing that we all talked about before the season that Dortmund has such incredible um, breadth and depth in their squad that's finally starting to really pay off. And with this new rule of five substitutions, I think that's an even bigger advantage to Dortmund, even in the game against Bayern, because I think, yes, if all the players are fit, Bayern might have the strongest starting eleven, but I do think Dortmund has a stronger bench. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can definitely get get with that, especially considering you know, as you said, the the, the the lineup that we all looked at heading into this match, which was missing a lot of Dortmund's strongest players, pretty much everybody uh, played to the, played up to the best we have seen of them, even players who you know haven't necessarily had the best of seasons. I mean, Mo Dahoud, who has been in and out of the side uh, for most of the season, you know, not only was was Great in this game, he was a, a new Modahood in terms of his uh, visual as- <laughs> affect. You know, this is this is the sort of cleanest buzz cut Modahood has has looked in recent memory. I mean, I, I guess everybody's been reaching for the Clippers through this lockdown if they are up for getting any kind of haircut. But uh, he he definitely went for the simple move. <laughs> Julian Brandt, who I think for my money, has been great all season, but hasn't always uh, found his way into the starting 11 all that often until the second half of the season. I mean, I don't see how you can take him out of this side at the moment. He is the center of everything for this team. And, and even if that means leaving Marco Royce out pretty regularly and bringing him in for the second half or, or, or finding a way to, to, to get him, him into the game in another spot... I'm all for Julian Brandt being given the keys here. Right. I think Julian Brandt is one of those players whose flexibility is kind of a curse for him under Favre because Favre, he he always brings him in on different positions, sometimes on, on the right wing, which is quite rare in Dortmund, but that's, of course, a position he sometimes played in Leverkusen. Sometimes he plays as a kind of number 10 behind 
uh, Haaland or he'll play as a number eight, uh, which I think is the strongest position by far in, in the center of midfield where you can dictate the match and play those passes from, you know, basically organize every attack. And that, of course, is where Emre Can and Witzel also have their home um, and Delaney too. So it's tough for him to to really claim a spot permanently in the starting eleven. But I agree, he's really used his opportunity. And I I also agree. I think there's no there's no sane argument right now to take him out of out of the Dortmund side. And also that that flick to to set up the goal that was just. Oof. Yeah, I, I I was like speechless. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those passes that just makes you gulp. Mm, man, oh my gosh. Yeah, that was incredible. <laughs> okay, you know, as as I mentioned a moment ago, this is a game that um thank goodness uh has has definitely kept the uh the title race alive. We have uh you know, a date between Dortmund and Bayern coming up in I guess about 8 days time, something like that. Bayern, of course, they they held up their end of the deal as well. They were in Berlin at the Alte Försterei to face Union. Another strange atmosphere, not so much uh, different in, in any great respect from Dortmund. In that you know, one empty stadium is much like another. But you know, this was another stadium that that has come to sort of claim as its big, big sort of USP, its big trademark uh, is the atmosphere. And and without that atmosphere. Union feel like a different animal, not necessarily on the pitch because, you know, I thought that Union actually played pretty well in this game and they have played pretty well in a lot of games against big sides at home. But it still feels very strange <laughs> to tune into an Union Berlin game and, and watch them sort of go through the motions in front of a, a virtual crowd. I agree. And yet I also really, more than in other stadiums, felt the spirit of the club that I, I felt that it was still kind of there. And honestly, I think it's because it's a small stadium because the other um, matches, I feel like the TV crews were really at, at pain not to show the ranks because it was like, oh, no, we, we're not going to go there. We don't we can't see that. We can't see the empty stands. And there was such a it was like really different angle of of the coverage which was odd you know you really you had a lot of viewpoints kind of from the side like from 90 degrees or from the top uh, basically different I thought that I thought the cameras covered the match differently to how they usually do this and at Union whenever you saw the stand you basically already saw the top of the stadium because it's such a small stadium and then you saw the the banners and they weren't banners by sponsors in most part but they were banners written by the fans and I, I did feel like it still retained some of that charm and some of that atmosphere that is basically making Union a kind of magnet for new Bundesliga fans. Yeah, yeah. And we did, uh, it, getting in the warm-up to this match, could get some of the uh, trademark sort of hard rock schlager uh, <laughs> mix of, of Nina Hagen and the rest doing Eisen <laughs> Union, which you can't have an Union match without that. <laughs> yeah. And but, you, you know, it's... You hear that you actually hear the recording of that song much more when when the fans aren't singing along, and I, I have to say, it it did not benefit uh, the <laughs> listener. And I, I have to agree with you about their playing style. I thought um, they basically had all the they had all the tools that you need in the box to be a Bundesliga side. You know, they managed to get the ball to the to their fellow players, 
short passes were good. Basically everything that I was missing in Schalke's performance, which was just so disappointing that, you know, players would were basically not able to play a simple flat ball um, five meters to their to their teammates. Uh, all of that when no one had. So I thought this was a really good performance because sometimes, of course, they do get derided as this team that gets by on hard and by just gets by by their chances and that they play a more traditional style of football. But I thought given that they were playing against Bayern without their fans, this was quite a courageous performance by them. Yeah, I was impressed even even in the loss. A bit of a banana peel for another title candidate. That's, uh, you know, RB Leipzig, who created a lot of chances, but only went away with a point uh, in, the, in their home match uh, against SC Freiburg. Kind of a weird little, like, you know, dribble, dribble, spilled milk kind of corner kick goal from uh, Manuel Gulde, which, which put Freiburg up in the first half. Uh, and then it was a, uh, you know, COVID hair to COVID hair special, I thought. Kevin Campbell, who's got a funny little top knot going right now with a diagonal ball to uh, uh, Yusuf Paulson who's, uh, you know, his ponytail is even more uh, robust than usual to even it up. I was a little bit surprised that uh, Leipzig couldn't seal the deal in this game. I, I I wasn't surprised from the respect that Leipzig often struggles against Freiburg and, and even, you know, did struggle against them when they were in the second division together. But I really thought that, you know, you mentioned it earlier in the show, the, the sort of the introduction of five substitutes, the sort of uh, increased emphasis and sort of advantage gain from depth. And, you know, Leipzig is a really deep side. I really thought that they were going to get it done in the second half and they just didn't. Agreed. And also Nagelsmann was one of the very few coaches not to use those two extra substitutions at his disposal, which I thought was surprising. Infuriatingly. Yeah. No, I agree. I thought it was very bizarre when you have such good choices on the bench. And yeah, I mean, also very odd, but I mean, he would have had his reasons, of course, uh, to start without Schick because Schick was so good uh, before the break. Also, Nkunku was very, very um, good. Actually, he did start, but he was quite poor in this match. It was an odd performance by Leipzig, a bit uh, unsatisfying for any fans of this team, I guess. I think Angelino again showed his promise. I think um, he's a very good player who settled in incredibly fast in this team, and it will be really good news to Leipzig if they, for Leipzig, if they manage to retain his services in the yeah, summer. I think he's got it. He's got it. And uh, as for Freiburg, I thought you know they made the most out of this. It's so impressive every year. We, we talk about this in every show, how they survive and actually play quite good football. Uh, Robin Koch is one of Germany's most promising talents and he performed really well again. Um, I think if we would be having a Euro this summer, <laughs> he would be in the Germany squad. And, uh, you know, when was the last time we said that, that uh, a Freiburg person, a young Freiburg talent, not Niels Petersen or someone like that, um, is a is a German international with chances to start for Germany. So really um, promising. And Gulda, yeah, great game for him. Really likable player. Um, has been around since his youth at the club. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a little happy for Freiburg um, that they managed to sneak um, away with a point here. Yep. 
And to folks who haven't watched the Bundesliga for very long and don't really know much about the character of Freiburg, there is a lot to like about this club. You know, they are from one of the smallest cities in in the league. They play in one of the smallest stadiums in the league, although they're about to move to a new one. They've got one of the coolest coaches in Christian Streich. Um, They are a huge, huge factory of talent, not only of homegrown talent, but of, you know, scouted talent, talent that they bring in from other leagues at a fairly young age. It can be a hard team to support from a sort of uh, continuity perspective because, you know, anytime a player has a good season for Freiburg, he, he gets sold. But that's 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 just how it works at a club like that. They know what their role in the league is. And that is basically to, you know, have a really good season. Then you sell all those players. Then you have a season where you either beat relegation or you don't. And then you work your way back up to having a really good season again. And the continuity is with the character of the club. The continuity is with Christian Streich. And... I don't know. It, it, it's a fun team to support if you don't mind getting relegated now and again. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. They're also in a university town. They've got really uh, political, socially political fans. And they are moving out of their really beautiful old stadium soon. So that's quite sad given circumstances. But the Schwarzwaldstadion um, in the middle of the Black Forest, uh, really scenic, is also part of their charm. And it's one of the hardest grounds to win at. Some of the big teams have had problems there. Bayern Munich has had problems there repeatedly over the past few years because it is a peculiar club and a peculiar atmosphere that's very unique in the Bundesliga. For sure. Um, another team that did have, uh, you know, I guess they still have something to say about the title race in, in a sort of theoretical sense. Uh, that's Borussia Mönchengladbach. They are now, what, six points off the pace. So stranger things have happened. They got a, a 3-1 win in Frankfurt. And this was, I would say, aside from Dortmund's, you know, pretty thundering win uh, at home to to Schalke, this one had, in some ways, an even, even more kind of like caught napping uh, situation in that you know, both that Gladbach were playing away from home and that they scored <laughs> their first goal after 35 seconds. <laughs> they were 2-0 up after seven minutes. And it really just kind of felt like the remaining <laughs> the remaining minutes of the game, of which, of which there were many, were just kind of lacking in... I don't want to say they were completely lacking in interest or drama because, you know, it was a fun enough game. But it was definitely a case of one team was ready to play and one team was not. Yeah, yeah, this was impressive because also some of the players who were perhaps not as in form as they were in the first half of the season really came back with a bang. Um, particularly uh, Marcos Turam was very good in this match. Playa as well, who's been linked uh, with Man United recently, which I think would be quite interesting. Um, I thought Florian Neuhaus was really strong in this match. He's really um, developing quite well. I mean, there were some scenes in this match where he kind of picked up the ball outside um, Gladbach's box and then just dribbled forward. And I really liked that. He had a strong game, I thought. And yeah, they were just really dominant. And Ben Sibaini also impressed me again. It's just so unusual in the modern game to have a fullback of that size. He's just so tall and physical. And yet he has all those qualities that we expect from a fullback or a wingback of dribbling forward, crossing, scoring goals. And um, yeah, this is... I mean, if you're new to the Bundesliga, Gladbach, in my opinion, is one of the more enjoyable teams to watch. They always play nice football. 
Yep, for sure, for sure. I, I you know, <laughs> I of course have my uh, uh, the team that I'm partial to, which <laughs> I wouldn't recommend necessarily to many many new fans. Uh, but you know, if if you're up for real drama, uh, go for it. <laughs> Gladbach has another great choice. They ha- are are in such a great sort of long term trajectory. Um, I mean. I can clearly remember when I first started watching the Bundesliga back in, you know, the the sort of mid to late aughts, that this was a club that was just in very much the same category as your, you know, Colognes and Stuttgarts and Hamburgs and Herthas and Eintrachts, teams that, that, you know, regularly go down and regularly are talked about as sleeping giants and, you know, just don't have their act together. And those days are so long gone. I mean, between what has happened, what happened to them with, with Lucien Favre when he took over and Max Abriel, their sporting director, um, in a more sort of, you know, presiding over the big picture sense. I mean, this, this club is such a great story over the last, you know, seven or eight years. And they are now attracting such a high caliber of player. They have one of the hottest young coaches in all of Europe, both figuratively and literally, if you like to, to look say. at men. Um, it's a team that also has a ton, uh, ton going for it. And, and they also have a fun group of fans who sort of were starved of success for a really long time, and, but have that sort of rich history that makes them feel like they deserve success, but not in an entitled crappy way, but in a cool sort of like the glory days are back. I don't know. They're, they're, they're cool. Yeah. And like you said, even the leadership, it's so harmonious that it's almost dull. It's not a club where Max Ebel, the sporting director or the coach is ever going to say something radical in a, on a Sunday morning television show or in an interview. No one's ever going to snap at a reporter or buy a, a surprising player in a negative sense. Uh, they just don't really do that. And therefore it was almost it was it was like a scandal at the end of last season when to get one of Europe's hottest players from Salzburg, from the Austrian league, they basically parted ways with Dieter Hecking, who then, of course, went to Hamburg. But for Gladbach measures, this was, that was like the end of the world because that was, that was real drama for them uh, when really it was just a very understandable, if a little bit cold decision. But clearly it's paid off. Yeah. I mean, everything they do seems to be calculated and smart. I mean, they had a sort of B- Maybe B-plus coach in Dieter Hecking. I mean, he's been fairly successful in the Bundesliga over the years. But they saw that there was an A-slash-A-plus coach on the market. So they did what they had to do. Right. You know, whatever the result, whatever the consequences. And, you know, that's not bad. Eintracht Frankfurt, pretty pretty sorry stuff from them. This, you know, is, is another team in that category of, I don't know, I guess lost season would have to be how you'd put it and all is not yet lost but looking at the table and looking at how much closer they are to the relegation playoff spot than they are to you know sixth place and europe it's not a great place to be it's it's got to create some question marks around what they are doing which is which is funny because in a lot of ways eintracht had been a a, a team that had sort of been next in line to get their act together in a long-term sense, like Gladbach have over the last seven or eight years. I can't say that I'm super shocked by what has happened to them this season, but I'm close to it. Yes and no. I think 
I think people perhaps underestimated the incredible sporting loss of the Buffalo herd, uh, so to speak, of um, Alea Rebecenjovic, who, of course, um, with the exception of Alea to some extent, and, and Rebic has been getting a little better recently in the Italian league, are really unhappy at their new clubs because they also needed Frankfurt the, the same way Frankfurt needed them because it's just that special, I mean, sorry, I'm using special a lot, but in this sense, the, the word is almost an understatement uh, in regards to Frankfurt's fans. <laughs> all of Europe saw that last year with all the choreographies and it means just beautiful, the sands and, and the Euro- Europa League matches. Oh. Bringing fifteen, twenty thousand away fans, like, right? That's that's no joke, and 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 that's beautiful, and that's part of the culture, and that makes Frankfurt very charming. But that, in the end, doesn't score goals. It will get you closer to scoring goals, but the goals have to be scored by the players. And Frankfurt really just couldn't compensate the loss. I think they made some really interesting signings. Uh, Daichi Kamada came back from loan. He's been he's really shown his potential in some matches. Uh, Philip Kostic is still the player we we saw last season. He had a really good free kick in this match from about 35 meters out that almost went in. And Martin Hinteregger, of course, the incredible fan favorite talisman Frankfurt player. In the last few minutes, he had kind of like a scene of the season save on the goal line <laughs> yep. um, to deny another another goal against uh, them. But besides that, yeah, it's it's a little sad because it's just they. I feel in terms of their playing style, they've lost a little bit of their spark and their direction. And I think another player that was so crucial for them last year was Danny Da Costa uh, as a wing back. And I really, I was surprised that he wasn't um, called up to to the German national team uh, last season because he was just so so good. And he's been poor this season as well. So it's just. There's just too much going wrong for Frankfurt this season to really um, be making a, a, a good run for the European spots again. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like this is not necessarily a, um, you know, let's ring the alarm bell situation for Frankfurt, but it's going to feel like more than just a bump in the road unless next season uh, we see a lot of those aforementioned guys find their form again or, or some of the guys who look like, Ones for the future become <laughs> ones for now. <laughs> All right. We're going to sort of throw things over to uh, Nick Wildhagen and uh, Eric from the Neverkusen podcast, one of many great English language team specific podcasts that exist in the Bundesliga. I can think of, you know, six, seven, eight that are quite active. I know you have, have, have participated at times on, on some of those, but those two guys, Nick Wildhagen, uh, famous Werder fan, as well as, uh, you know, Eric dedicated to Bayer Leverkusen, they have a little bit to say about the Monday night match that took place in Bremen. It's Monday night. The last match of the match day has just blown off. My name is Nicholas Viltag, and I'm taking over for a few minutes for Matt Herman, and I'm joined by... uh, 
none other than Eric Brühl from the Navikusen podcast, who is giddy at the seams. <laughs> How are you tonight, Eric? I'm doing well. Thank you, Nick. It's great to, great to speak with you again. Um, we've got a video conference going here, so I can see the drink and beer. Um, I totally understand that, and uh, I totally understand why you would want to do that. Um, it's, it's, actually, it's actually passion fruit soda. It's, uh, it's ah. a soda called Love, which is uh, a seducing soda with passion fruit according to the norwegian maker who's produced that it. was some pretty um passion fruit <laughs> defense that Bremen played today i would have to say yeah yeah let's just go <laughs> let's just get straight to the match maybe we, we can use our hats uh something that the voter defense obviously couldn't <laughs> what do you make of it i mean by leverkusen the possession game they had most uh, the game was mostly played in Bremen's third in the first half but they didn't produce an awful lot of chances but they were effective, weren't they, before the break? Yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's probably a, kind of a good way to to look at it. Um, it it's obviously you know we've, we've had now a weekend of Bundesliga. This is, as you said, the last match of the weekend. Um, this was really kind of my uh, the, the first match I watched in its entirety this weekend. And um, you know certainly we can talk about the empty stadiums and what kind of effect that has. Um, I have to admit, I kind of like hearing um, what's going on out on the pitch at times, um, but obviously you do miss the passion of the fans, and especially in a, in a, in a stadium like at Bremen, where obviously we know the fans are are very, very passionate. So, um, you know, it looked like it looked exactly as you might expect early on. Bayer Leverkusen actually surprised a lot of us. Um, I think a lot of fans with their lineup, um, their initial lineup, which was, which included um, the youngest ever Bayer Leverkusen debutante. Um, Florian Abitz, who um, it must be said, had for his first game a really excellent game. And yeah, you know, you saw some of the old standbys. Kai Havertz was in the lineup. Um, obviously, he was leading the line, strangely enough. Right behind him, Amiri and Diaby and Spirits, I thought, you know, looked really good, um, actually, for having been, uh, having not played football, competitive football um, for two months. Um, they, there were some, you know, there were some small areas where there were deficiencies, but for the most part i was really impressed with the um with the overall first game and i think the match grew into itself as it went on yeah because when the second half came around and bremen actually they started off with one attack uh that came to an end after 30 seconds a shot by i think it was maxi eggestein who um sort of tried to uh, get bremen back to level footing but after that it was all leverkusen really and there was yeah. a third headed goal i mean both, both of harvard's goal and the first half were you know, headed goals, and the third one by Mitchell Weiser, another headed goal. First time since 2006 that Bayer Leverkusen actually have three headed goals in one match. Back then, 2006, the goals were scored by, uh, among others, Carsten Ramelow and Dimitar Babatov. So it's been a while. Yes. Yeah, that was, um, you know, I think that was uh, evidence of just kind of, yeah, I feel I feel bad for Florian Kohfeldt. I mean, it basically, those three-headed goals were very similar to one another. The first and the third uh, were almost identical copies of one another, and then that was just some really poor marking on the um, on the free kick for the second goal. But uh, it, there does seem to be a real problem in Bremen um, allowing uh, teams to get behind them. And, you know, the, the chip to the headed goal is kind of like one of those training ground things that you do, you know, when you're scrimmaging. You, you don't really see it that often. I don't see it that often, I should say, by Bayer Leverkusen. But, um, yeah, they, they were kind of playing around today as though they were, especially in the second half, as they were on the training pitch yeah and the, the fourth goal was delightful as well i mean that really finished off the match uh, because um 
I mean, we could run through all the statistics, but uh, needless to say, Bayer Leverkusen pretty much won them all. And, and, you know, it was really symbolic for me the way that the Bremen defence just stood there completely static and uh, it was just outdone by a quick move, quick pass and uh, then Karim Dembe um, finished off with... Uh, you know, what might have been one of the best finishes of the season. Yeah, yeah, subtle. Uh, yeah, that whole goal was beautiful. Um, I, I think, you know, my favorite player is Kareem Bellarabi. So his role in that with the no-look pass, that was just like silky. Um, I absolutely absolutely uh, loved that. Yeah, that, that was a nice way to kind of round out the game. Yeah, there's not a lot to be said. I mean, from an individual uh, standpoint, you know, the um, standouts for Bayer Leverkusen, I think, um, you know, obviously were Havertz. Um, uh, Mitchell Weiser had a fantastic game. Um, in addition to the goal, Edmund Topstoba keeps proving that, you know, he's the, he was the best purchase in January of any uh, purchase in the Bundesliga, in my opinion. And yeah, and even... Um, Not Kevin Fogta, you, you say. <laughs> you know who had a nightmare is Bittencourt. Um, the, oh, he had, Jesus Christ. He had a terrible... I mean, two of... He should have... Uh, yeah, he was in on goal for that one that he blasted over... And then he tried a volley in the second half that literally left the Vaser Stadium, I think. Um, None of yeah. his free kicks cleared the first defender as well, which is, you know, it's either too high or too low with with that guy at the moment. But um, I think, I mean, speaking from a Verda perspective, I think it's just inherent that you see that the entire team just lacks confidence. There are no natural leaders on, on, on the park saying, let's turn this around. I mean, it's true. Put, you put 1-0 behind by the first chance by Bayer Leverkusen, but you get straight back and get an equaliser just moments afterwards. And that should have been a turning point. But no, we were in for more of the same. And when you look at the fact and look at the best better chances of the match, actually the guy who was having the best chances was the right-back, Theo Gabriel Selassie, which... Um, Selassie, yeah. You know, I mean, they, they spent an awful lot of money that they didn't have to bring Davy Selke back to the club in uh, January. And... Um, Talking about those January purchases, he wasn't really one of the better ones so far. I mean, he had one good game in the Cup against Dortmund, and, and that's pretty much been it for Werder Bremen. So there's no leadership on the park. The guys you would assume should step up, like Moisander, Eggestein, Philipp Barkfreder, they were really nowhere to be found. And, you know, another guy who was brought in, I mentioned him earlier, Kevin Vogt, he was brought in for his mentality. But my God, that pass he played in the, was it 70th minute, where he yeah. just tried to, to be a bit too cheeky to play a loose pass, uh, you know, to just get out of defense. At that point, it was still 3-1, I think. So there was an ever so slight chance that Werder might be able to put one back and get back into the game. At that point, it was just nonchalant and really, it, it just um, spoke to the way that, you know, if you play if you play such passes in defense, yeah, you're, you're pretty much boogered because the opposition like Bayer Leverkusen is going to make mincemeat of you any day of the week. Yeah, no, that that was um, that surprised me a little bit as I was watching Bremen. Um, obviously, I recognized all, all the names, but you're right, a, a kind of leader doesn't stand out. Um, you've got some some talent there with like um, uh, like you mentioned, Salasi, uh, Rashica. Um, you, you've got some talent uh, on that team, but but nobody really to you know, take the team by the ball, so to speak. And yeah, it just looked like as the game went on, they just became more and more disjointed um, from uh, the Bremen side. And yeah, I mean, at the, that, that final goal at the end, it was all Leverkusen. And yeah, I mean, you can, you can see uh, Leverkusen, there's obviously Bremen are um, struggling and, and um, potentially thinking, you know, uh, potentially looking at a season in the second Bundesliga, if things continue, um, 
but you can see that there is kind of a gulf in quality between like the you know Leverkusen is I think fifth right now one point behind uh, one point behind fourth and um, after Leverkusen I think there's a significant like four or five point drop um, and and you can kind of see you could kind of see that today today was a little bit of a microcosm of that mm. yeah and with defending like that it's sweet you say that 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 Werder only should get one season in the Bundesliga too because with defending like that you'll get many seasons in the Bundesliga too <laughs> to you know take a taking our eye off the game itself what was going on on the pitch we need to talk about the empty stadium we need to talk about the Bundesliga being back at this given point what's your take on it um it surprised me I, I guess it surprised me because I never really expected um the German football league to kind of lead the way in this you know Germans tend to play things a little closer to their vests a little more cautiously this is you know they're reopening it I it's wonderful obviously for those of us who have missed football you know it's I don't know when it or if ever there'll be a total return to normalcy as we previously experienced. But I, I mean, I, my personal opinion, and I'm kind of, um, and I have to admit, I'm, I'm a little bit paranoid, not paranoid, but I have a healthy respect for this virus. My, my, my thinking is it's probably a little too early, probably could have waited a week or two um, for reopening things. But, you know, if, if we see that, if we see that, um, The social distancing, the empty stadiums, et cetera, are effective, then, um, yeah, I mean, by all means, I was so excited this morning when I woke up that Bayer Leverkusen was playing <laughs> and I'd forgotten, you know, I'd forgotten what that feels like. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know that I would, I mean, my, my think, like I said, um, I'm glad it's, I'm glad they're playing. I guess we'll have to wait and see to see what the ramifications are. Yeah. I mean, um, I said on an earlier episode that I, I hope that I'm proving, I'm proven wrong because I think that's, The whole construct is rather fragile. I mean, it just takes one player to get seriously ill. Exactly. Or one team to get many, many cases. And uh, in the Bundesliga 2, you now have Dynamo Dresden, a team that was sent into quarantine by uh, the local health officials in the state of Saxony because, uh, you know, they, they actually are uh, pretty much in the same situation as Bremen in the Bundesliga 2. The entire team was... Mm -hmm. sent into quarantine and they cannot compete for the first three matches of the Bundesliga 2 of the reset of the Bundesliga 2 season which uh, you know it's giving the planners of at the DFL uh, a healthy headache <laughs> so <laughs> in that regard I, I mean we, we aren't going to see a lot of chances going forward and I think with the Dynamo Dresden team it you know it, it might just be the beginning because I think What the Salomon Kalu video has shown, what the Bergen Vastrate interview showed, and what Heike Hörlich's comments showed is that the respect for the rules, you know, that, that hygiene document, which was so bulletproof that uh, it, it should have been developed by NASA if you <laughs> listen to the DFL official, you know, he didn't care about it. He just went to the supermarket to get some bloody toothpaste and What was it? Hand cream? Yeah, I, thought, I, I, rem I, I don't know about the hand cream. Definitely toothpaste. He did say, yeah, I do remember him saying toothpaste. But, but the, the thing is, I mean, how, just to show you how much out of touch Heike Hurley is here, um, he actually only had a banknote. Uh, he didn't have any, any change on him, which in Germany is really, if, if you are a normal human being in Germany, you go with change on you because you need change wherever you go because Germany's not that great in terms of, you know, getting your cash out from, you know, paying with cards and stuff. People prefer actually cash. Uh, having cash on you is uh, what a normal human being would do. 
if you are going just around with banknotes, you're considered to be a bit of a, well, rich person who's out of touch, one might say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that whole situation doesn't reflect um, well on, on um, Heiko Herrlich at all. Um, and he, you know, he's made to look even more the fool now from having to be away from his team for two weeks um, while, they, uh, while they check for symptoms. So, yeah, and, and that's just it. It's, um, it's, as you said, Nick, this structure, the, this whole thing is premised on something so um, potentially easy to knock out of kilter it's you know it doesn't even take a player to get a team sick it takes like one of the attendants or something like that who travels with the team or is around the team and yeah that's that's my that's my concern basically in a nutshell that the kind of the, the, the skeleton of this thing is much too unstable at this point and you know i wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me either if um there was you know if, if something happened and they had to they had to uh, shut down the season again yeah um you know i mean at biolivic isn't you have uh, additionally your coach does have asthma yeah which means that he that's a good um, point if he contracted COVID nineteen, he might he might run a slightly higher danger than you and me mm-hmm. in terms of dying from it. Yeah. Would you know as as you know, um, doing your work in the public eye uh, goes? I, I think uh, being put at that sort of risk is um, pretty big, big ask for any human being. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I mean at this point, you know, it started. So now we can all we can really do is wait and see what happens. But um, obviously, fingers hope for the best to prepare for the worst kind of thing. Um, uh, in in this situation, yeah. Well, before I let you go, predictions for the rest of the season for Bayer Leverkusen. Where do you think they're heading after after this marvelous four one win over a, a, a Bremen side, which we might consider to be slightly out of whack? Yeah, I, 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 it's been so long since I've watched Bundesliga football. I have absolutely no idea who. Uh, by Leverkusen are playing in the coming <laughs> weeks because it's all so new again. Um, so obviously next week's the big one. Then I just looked at my uh, just looked at my calendar. Next weekend is Mönchengladbach and Leverkusen, and yeah, I think Mönchengladbach is in third right now. Um, so basically, yeah, this is this is the this is the battle for that Champions League spot, that fourth Champions League spot, which will presumably go to you know the third and fourth spots will go to Leipzig by Leverkusen or um, mentioned Gladbach. So this one needs to, this is an important match and uh, Gladbach looked good this weekend too. Um, looked tough. So uh, yeah, it'll, it, I think, I think personally, I do think we'll qualify for gym. But if, if, if the process plays out as it's supposed to, we play all um, all of the match days, then I do think um, Bayer Leverkusen will have just enough to probably supplant um, Borussia Mönchengladbach um, in the top four. Well, best of luck with that. And I, I just took a look at the schedule as well and saw that Werder Bremen off here playing Borussia Mönchengladbach the following week. So Werder probably has you back there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and with that, uh, it's back to you, Matt. All right, so we are back on Talking Foosball. Thanks so much, Nick and Eric, for your input on that, uh, frankly, dispiriting performance from uh, Werder. I'm going to talk about the other side of the coin when you feel actual joy from football, uh, which actually happened to me uh, on Saturday morning, which I I hadn't felt in a while. And that was a 3-0 win away from home for Hertha BSA against Hoffenheim. This was basically just a second half blitz, which which gave the old lady a tickle when and, and pushed them up on the table. That's kind of what 
Bruno Labadia is known for. <laughs> His first game in charge was a, a, a huge success, but, you know, it all started with an own goal, thank goodness. Vera Dabisevic added another with a banger off of a, a cross from Maxi Mittelstedt, and then Mateusz Cunha did his Mateusz Cunha thing, which was just sublime, coming in from the left wing and uh, taking it all the way home himself. Not that much to talk about necessarily from the game. I think it was kind of a funny game in that um, there were probably a lot more goals in this game than than there maybe uh, ended up being, especially uh, on on the side of Hoffenheim. I think uh, Rune Jarstein, Hertha's goalkeeper, was was primed for this game. It was really good to see him back to his best. Oddly enough, most of the headlines in Germany after this game were not even about the result, surprising as it might have been, but about the celebrations that took place in this game. I, do you want to sort of explain what happened here and and tell me whether you think it added up to anything much? Sure. <laughs> so as our listeners will probably know, the DFL, which is the company that manages the Bundesliga, the German Football League Association, released a 50-page hygiene and conduct document that uh, they submitted to the German government that got approved and that got a lot of respect and admiration in the media um, just for how detailed it was. And part of that, probably page 26 at the bottom of the page or somewhere where I'm sure no player on earth read it, said that players are not allowed to touch in their goal celebrations. And, you know, they have to celebrate by touching their elbows or their feet or whatever. And it seems like Hertha didn't remind their players of this <laughs> because... Um, They've got a you know, great track record of reminding their players <laughs> of all the hygiene uh, uh, restrictions. Exactly. So this is like, if you if you watch that infamous Facebook Live uh, Solomon Kalou video that I'm surprised hasn't been released to cinemas yet, this is kind of the sequel. And this... Really, the response to this, and this being, in case anyone missed it, that the players hugged and embraced after their first goal, this led to this huge argument on Twitter over, why is Hertha being Hertha again? How dare they? They're setting a bad example. They're breaking the rules. Why were they not prepped? And then the other side, which is kind of where I stand, saying, okay, what if, why, you know, if they man-mark each other on corners where they basically hug each other, they tackle each other and fall on top of each other, then why can't they high-five or touch each other's shoulders to celebrate a goal? And yeah, I think um, that's really all I have to say about the celebration. Yeah, yeah. It, it all seemed like a very strange and farcical tempest in a teapot to me. You know, obviously, I, I'm a Hertha fan and I've sort of, you know, seen my club, <laughs> for the most part, rightfully, uh, pilloried a lot over the last <laughs> weeks and months. So in, in some ways, it just felt like more of the same. But I, I do kind of see, in this case, like maybe the, I don't know, feeling of victimization or feeling of overreaction seems justified. Because as you said, like, you know, when you look at the sort of pictures of action in these games about how players are basically playing in their normal way, especially on things like set pieces or, you know, helping each other off the ground after they've, you know, taken one another out <laughs> with a, a mistimed tackle or whatever. Players are touching all the time. And the idea that cutting out this one allegedly unnecessary opportunity for touching, which is to say celebration, is 
a, a standard we all must uphold. It seems really dumb. And I've been actually surprised at how many teams have 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 played it so well. There was a celebration in Monday's uh, Leverkusen Verder game. It was uh, you know Mitchell Weiser and I think Paulinho. You know had a nice hug. So maybe they'll be uh, maybe they'll be shamed in the Bildzeitung as well, and, and <laughs> as well as by various politicians. But it all seemed pretty pretty dumb to me. Let's talk about a game that actually had a lot of uh, good storylines to it, uh, especially if 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 you think uh, seesaws are are great storylines. Cologne and their two two draw with Mainz. Interesting game. Yeah. How did you see it playing out? I mean, Cologne. They were 2-0 up and cruising in this game and then absolutely let it get away from them. So this match, uh, I'm not sure who else saw it on um, the really famous three. It was a 3.30 kickoff, which is, of course, what the Bundesliga is known for, but on a Sunday. And I'd just gotten back from a walk. I'd gotten out my beer, was sitting down on the sofa. And then it was that match. And for some reason, I expected that I would be tuning into Union versus Bayern, (laughs) which happened to be after. And I was a bit disappointed. And then... You know, three minutes into the match, I was like, no, this is awesome. This is because there was that moment where Mark Ut, I mean, it was beautiful. Who is Mark Ut, by the way? He's just like this new person, this like super striker who's involved in every single goal and plays like Marco Royce. Anyway, he basically received a ball in the box with the back of his left heel, lifted it over Nyakate, the opposite defender, over his head with the heel then tried to get past Niakate and tripped over Niakate, or was tripped, I should say, and uh, won the penalty. And then he was like, you know what? I won the penalty. I'm going to score the penalty, which is kind of a rule in German and international football that you're not allowed to, not really supposed to break, that the player that gets fouled isn't supposed to take it because it's unlucky or whatever. But he did, and he converted it very well. And yeah, and then... Cologne were flying and Cologne were flying before the break. So everyone was like, here comes Cologne. They're going to, you know, win 4 0 and go into the Europa League. But Mainz was like, nope, um, we actually are in this match too. And they scored uh, through Kunde a goal of the month contender. Absolutely incredible that he was just able to dribble in over 20 meters um, without being attacked. Yeah, um, that was a, a hot knife <laughs> through butter goal if you ever saw one. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked so surprised. He scored and he was like, what? <laughs> um, and again, I mean, I actually really enjoy watching Mainz because they've got some really talented players. Um, Boetius is a favorite of mine. Onizivo, again, showed his talent. Mateta, we don't have to talk about, um, although he's been injured for much of the season. But they've got some really good young players who are destined to move to bigger leagues in the future. And this was the first time since 2017 that Cologne gave up a two-goal lead. I think uh, we always presume that two-goal leads can be caught up in a match, even, you know, 70 minutes in, 80 minutes in. But it happens a lot. I mean, it's it's much rarer statistically than the fans would like to believe. So this was really impressive by Mainz that they managed to come back from this deficit. Yep, yep. For sure. A couple of more games that happened on the weekend, ones which I really have nothing much to say about. One of which I, I think very few people have, have much to say about, which is to say uh, Dusseldorf and Paderborn's uh, nil-nil draw. That was the 
Move along, folks. Nothing to see here. Special of the weekend. <laughs> Augsburg went down at home. 2-1 to Wolfsburg. Interesting side note to that one is that uh, Wolfsburg moved into, you know, sole possession of sixth place, which is, you know, Europa League spot uh, with this one. This is a really weird one. This is a really weird one because this is, you know, the team who started off great this season and then just sort of conked out. Sneaking back into the European conversation, I'm, I'm so weirded out. Yeah. They, I mean, they, they do have some really good players that no one really pays attention to because it is Wolfsburg and no one really cares. But Mbabu is really becoming a strong Bundesliga player. Um, definitely one to watch. Um, definitely also physically a type of player that would play in the Premier League in the future. I very much like the look of Schlager. I thought he was in the first few games of the season, he was one of the standout players for me mm -hmm. in midfield. And um, he was injured for a long time, unfortunately, but he's back and he had a good performance. And Wolfsburg, I think they're, they're happy with Glasner and his work. I actually heard Glasner on a German podcast, um, the Kicker Meets the Zone uh -huh. podcast, and he's quite impressive. He's one of those very holistic coaches who thinks about psychology and um, yeah, the well-being of the players and their families and just, you know, he, he's very modern in that sense and seems quite grounded as well. And they, they have an interesting project going on there. Um, you know, you have to pay credit where it's due, even though as a, you know, a more re football romantic of, of German heritage, I'm not a huge fan of, you know, this VW club, but they've had a, a good season and they had a dip in form and now they're kind of back. All right. Well, I think that's probably enough from this this strange, strange weekend of uh, Bundesliga football. <laughs> it was really great having you on the podcast again, Marie Schulte-Bockham. I think we can probably try and get you in one more time for the season, if, if you'll say yes right now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Definitely. I'd love to. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, you know, as long as this season uh, gets us through eight more games, I, I think there's definitely room. And and the early results in terms of, of safety uh, were good, although the real uh, proof will be in the pudding of the next 14 days or so, I guess. Uh, the clock is now ticking on the uh, effectiveness of the <laughs> quarantine. Yeah. All right. Where can folks find you on Twitter or, or elsewhere? Yeah, you can find me at Marie Shubo, Marie, M-A-R-I-E, and then S-C-H-U-B-O. And uh, that's where you can find any football-related memes um, or bursts of anger directed at Schalke management. Excellent. All right. Uh, you can find me at Mr. Matt Herman on Twitter. Find this podcast at Talking Foosball. And please do subscribe to the podcast and, uh, you know, leave us a review or just tell a friend who might be experiencing a sudden burst of interest in German football, uh, because this is the place for it. Trust me. This is a mix and mall, y'all. <laughs>